You're listening to a WebYeshiva.org podcast. Visit www.webyeshiva.org to take part in our fully interactive online yeshiva. Visit blog.webyeshiva.org for more free downloadable Torah content. This is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs of Atid and WebYeshiva.org. Here at Atid, over the past number of years, Rabbi Chaim Bravander has been leading us all on a very interesting exercise in thinking about the way that the encounter with great art can and should enhance the religious experience. Recently, on a visit to the Israel Museum with about a dozen friends and supporters and people who've been involved in trying to raise the level of discussion about the role of arts in Jewish life, he had a following to say. So, thank you for coming. Um, I'd like to do two things today. First, to tell you a little bit about where my interest in art comes from and what it is that I am looking for in the art. Um, the second thing I would like to do is look at several paintings that are hanging here in the museum and talk about them a little bit and in that case everybody is invited to say whatever they want to say. Uh, the problem for me Personally, I'm only talking about myself now. The problem for me, personally, even though I spent most of my life learning and teaching Torah, which I think is a, uh, not a bad thing to do, in spite of the fact that you don't get rich, uh, it still is not a bad thing to do. And I was, I'm happy. I was always happy that I did that. But I was not happy... I was not particularly happy with Davenik. Again, I'm talking about myself. I'm not talking about anybody else or any community of Davenik's. I myself was not happy about Davenik. I felt that there was uh, an excessive uh, concentration on details, which kind of wore you down. Like, if you spent all the time thinking about, is it time yet? Has the time come? What time is it? And who has the watch that tells me the time that it really is? Because that itself is, you know, a problem. Or uh, do I say that today? Or don't I say that today? I mean, who could know? This, this handbook of what to do and what not to do says yes, and the other handbook says no. And so we got, you know, it is possible to get very involved in davening, the way we daven, by getting so into the details. Also, you know, imagine, uh, like, one of the most complicated uh, uh, things you can imagine is what happens if you come late to shul? Well, that's, you know, that could take you just a week to go through the various options. Meanwhile, if you come late to shul, you're like, you've had it. There's no way that you'll ever catch up. Nothing. So, all of this bothered me theoretically, not practically, because when I davened in the yeshiva, I was supposed to come on time. And when I didn't daven in the yeshiva, I went someplace else where they supposedly knew what they were doing. So, davening, davening I said, but, the, but the real, what I thought the crux of davening was, which is, they kept telling me, that you stand before God. I, I, I felt that I was not 
doing it. Like I wasn't. And then I, I found this Rambam. I found the Rambam. I'm going to try to be brief. I mentioned this Rambam in an article that I wrote, which, you know, is still around. You know, it, it was it was published in paper. So if it hasn't like dissolved, it's still there. The Rambam says in in the second parak, which is, you know, everything the Rambam says is worth thinking about. But this is especially worth thinking about. The Rambam says this, that there's a mitzvah. Mitzvah means something that's incumbent upon me. I'm going to have to do it, like a mitzvah to shake a lulav, or a mitzvah to eat matzah. There's a mitzvah. What is this mitzvah? Lahava ulir, to love God and to fear God. Now, I looked at this Rambam and I said to myself, that I don't really participate in this mitzvah, even though it's right here in black and white. But my participation in the mitzvah is kind of by rote. It's true that I do what I'm supposed to do. But it could be that's the way I was brought up, that's the way I decided to do it, so I'm, uh, I'm functionally in there someplace. But in theory, I would imagine that loving God, fearing God, that be a moment during the day or during the week or during the month or during the year where you would feel this uh, with great intensity. So the Rambam may, this is my interpretation, the Rambam may have understood that this is difficult. This is not easy. So the Rambam then in the second halacha, he says, Heach Hiaderech. So how do you do it? I mean, you would think, the way people talk today, that Yirat Shamayim, like, you know, in Shiduchim, people say, does he have Yirat Shamayim? So, that's like a good question. Uh, how exactly are you supposed to answer that question? So usually the answer is that he's functionally like us. Like he does what he's supposed to do. That's, they don't ask about the, the girls if they have Yerat because I guess they all do. But the boys apparently are uh, problematic in this area. So the Rambam says, hey, How do you get there? How do you get to love God? How do you get to fear God? This is, I'm telling you, the part that's a quote is a quote, right? It's not me talking about the quote. The Rambam says this. He says that you have to look at the things that God created, ma'asav ubru'av hadifla'im v'agdolim. So it sounds to me like science. Science does it. Like, if you know about photosynthesis, remember photosynthesis? It's high school biology. I remember it very well. If you know about photosynthesis, you can't help but appreciate God. Like, it's that theory of complexity, that the world is so com- complex today that it just can't have come about without God intervening. Now, I don't know about this argument, but there's this guy who this famous atheist who taught in Reading University. I forget his name. Reading. Reading is outside of London. Right? I don't know if that's a... What's his name? Hawkins. No, not Hawkins. 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 Not Hawkins. Not Hawkins. 
guy who taught in the Reading University or University of Reading. So he was an atheist. He was a popularized atheism. He says there's no proof and there's no reason to think there's a God. And this, and recently, he must be about 80, like maybe he's an adult in the brain. So he said, oh, who? Fluke. Right, they see, it's good to have somebody around who knows things. So, so uh, and he said, he said, well, the DNA, uh, he looked into the DNA structure, and it's so complicated that there must be a God in the world. But he didn't change his lifestyle. It was him to understand that the difference between not believing in God and believing in God is not what we're about. We're about doing what God wants us to do. Right, that's a whole different, it's a whole different kind of uh, thing. So, so the Rambam says, if you want to be close to God, you want to be close to God, you have to look at photosynthesis. You have to study science. You have to get to very, very small things that seem to work according to some wondrous plan, and then you will feel, you will feel God. So I thought to myself, I appreciated the Rambam, I appreciated the fact that the Rambam said, there's something to do here. That Ahavah and Yirah, love and fear of God, they're not automatic. It doesn't just happen because you say it. But you have to make an effort. You have to put in uh, effort. So I was, uh, having been already a failed scientist, I, I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure that science today was the, was the way, even though Fuchs said it, it is. He said DNA. That's what he said, but for me, for me, we were so into, the, scientists keep saying, well, how does this work? And how does that work? And, and, and it all seems to be like, like tremendous, they, they have these tremendous achievements theoretically and practically and testing, and they say, well, this works this way, this works that way, you know that there is this particle. You know about particles? There's a particle. There's a particle that, that um, Higgs, the Higgs particle. Maybe you've heard the Higgs particle. There's a particle in the nucleus of the atom which is a theoretical particle. So it's like they made, they, they did the numbers, and they figured out there's got to be something else that's making it work in this way. So there's a Higgs particle. So they're, they're so clever that they said this winter, which just passed, right? Well, I said this winter, or maybe now, they have this cyclotron someplace in France, outside of Paris. Cyclotron means... It goes very fast. Particle yeah, the particles, like, they can zap them around very fast. And when they get zapped around very fast, they tend to come apart. Everything comes apart. And when it comes apart, they're going to find Higgs. I don't know why it's called Higgs. But they're going to find it. So that's how good science is. They not only can create a theory, they can not only convince me that there's a particle that no one ever heard of, but they can then go and prove Without a doubt, they can, they can come up with it, they can take it out. So that science, there's a certain kind of romance that's necessary for Abba the hero that I think, for me, was missing in science. Even though I studied science a little bit, and I was a math major in college, which uh, is not exactly science, but it's like a certain kind of perfection. You know, math always works out. Uh, science doesn't always work out, but often it does. So, I, on the one hand, I was happy with the Rambam, 
And on the other hand, I was not uh, satisfied personally. I'm not satisfied personally. Then I came to this recognition that there's something called, not my recognition, I mean, everybody, uh, starting from the Greeks until modern time, but I just had not paid much attention to it. But everybody agreed that there is something called beauty in the world. Now, uh, the study of beauty, the study of beauty uh, might yield an interesting, an interesting fact, which is that certain kinds of things everybody agrees are beautiful. And other kinds of things, there are, there's a mafortis. There's a difference of opinion. So let's take something that everybody agrees about. The Scottish Highlands. If you've never been to the Scottish Highlands, you should go. Because it's there. They're there. And, and the Scottish Highlands are, by all definitions, um, seem to be beautiful. Everybody loves the Scottish Highlands. It doesn't matter if you come from one part of the world or another part of the world, if you have this kind of education or that kind of education, it's very hard to look at those Scottish Highlands and not draw a deep breath and say, wow. Right? That's what... So there is this capacity that we have. There is this capacity to see beauty in God's created world, in the world that God, that God created. Um, But how often can you go to the Scottish Highlands if you live in Yerushalayim? I mean, it's not the end of the quest. It's just the beginning of things. The idea that there is beauty in the world. So we'll skip all the Greeks and we'll go quickly. We're almost, I'm almost finished. We'll go quickly to, to Kant. Kant was a philosopher who was generally, to me, incomprehensible. I don't know what, what, generally what he's talking about because he has a language that is his own. He, he makes up meanings for words and then he uses them as though everybody understands it. That makes it a little difficult. I have to get the... Uh, there must be an idiot's version of Kant or something that would be helpful to me, but I don't really always understand. But Kant made a serious distinction in art. And he said that, you know, art can be beautiful... Art can be impressive, impressive to everybody, but there are certain conditions. And let me, I'll try to summarize what he said. He says, the conditions is that it has no other purpose. It's only there to connect you to the beauty of it. So that if there is a statue of Yuri Gagarin, as you go into Moscow, you know, you, go, you remember Yuri Gagarin? So he was a, he was a hero yeah. in Moscow. So there's a statue of Yuri, when you drive into, um, you can't drive any other way, I think. I mean, you have to go in and you see the statue. And the statue looks like a takeoff of a Greek Apollo, but with Yuri Gagarin's face. So, according to Kant, that would not be art, because there's a message, and the message is uh, what, what destroys the value of the art. It's uh, not that that's a bad thing, necessarily. I mean, of course, uh, like, so, so, uh, 
So the Jews, the Jews like art with messages. We like it. We like uh, um, kiddush cups and habola boxes, and uh, because it connects us to to symbols that we know about and that we like. But according to Kant, none of that is called art. And I think he is the one who originated this idea that there is fine art. That there is art that the, the goal of it is itself, is somehow recreating the creation, just like the Scottish Highlands are about the creation of the world. There's art that recreates the creation in a particular way. It doesn't have a message, but it allows you to look at things through the eyes of the artist that you were not able to see when you looked yourself. Because the artist has this special talent, in my opinion, to capture a moment. And when you capture a moment, you know that when God created the world, one of the creations is time. Everything moves on. Everything changes. Art produces things often. Again, I'm talking about the kind of art that I'm interested in. It produces things that don't, that are not bounded by time. They are the moment itself. So that the moment itself brings me closer to the way God created it. Right? Because time even is, is an ad- add-on. You know, it's an add-on. And therefore, movies are different. And, and, uh, you know, the closest thing to art is probably architecture. Well, architecture is like art. But architecture is, uh, is more difficult. It's more difficult for whatever reason. So I found that looking at certain paintings, and, you know, I don't have to go there. I don't have to go to museums. I buy those books, you know, that the museums publish for outrageous sums of money. So when they, you go to a museum and they have a certain exhibit, so you buy the book from the last exhibit, which is on sale, because nobody, nobody bought it. That's what I do. That's what I do. I buy the book from the last museum, last uh, exhibit, and then I, I look at it. And you look at it, you see the world in a special way, as the artist helps you to see the world. So, that's what I, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in um, promoting art, certain kinds of art, as, as a way of coming closer to God. Coming closer to God. I mean, a lot of ways that people have adopted in modernity that don't appeal to me, you know, clapping your hands, stamping your feet, running around screaming and yelling, and all of those things are not for me. Remember for me, maybe it's, it could be me. I mean, I'm not saying that those people are not satisfied by whatever they're doing. I'm saying it doesn't satisfy me. And, and, uh, and uh, I remember the first time you know, when I, was, uh, I saw the Night Watch, uh, so I was in Amsterdam, first of all. We went, Miriam and I, my wife, we went on Shabbos. Because they told us that if you just tell them you're Jewish, you get in for free. So I tried that. I said, hi, I'm Jewish. Like I said, this kind of love of Jews I never experienced growing up in New York. So we went in. You know, the night watch is hung in a tremendous room. 
it's like tremendous. The Daibach is a very big painting, but the room is a lot bigger. But with the room and with the painting, you have to say, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what the night watch, what, what's the big deal? All these people standing there and doing nothing. But it was just astounding. I didn't have a language to express why I thought it was astounding. So I had to do, you know, so I had to learn about it. I had to study it. But there are, uh, I mean, you see all these people, people, they're all creations, all created by God, all doing something of significance. I mean, that's the really interesting thing about the night watch. If you look closely and more closely and more closely, you see more. You don't see less. It's not like you have to see all the people at one time. No, you can like, go and see this guy and that guy and then say to yourself, what's he doing? And that's really, that's really what we, we I, uh, was looking for, to be able to translate the moment into the creation. And, and, and I think that this is most true, and we're going to see uh, today, now I'm, I'm really almost finished, we're going to see, um, you know, still life. It isn't still life. Like, why would, you have to say to yourself, like you're an outsider, you say, why should a guy who knows how to paint, or a woman who knows how to paint, who can produce, like, why should they paint apples and pears? I mean, you can go to the, to the, to the market, to the vegetable. I mean, see piles of apples and pears, and what do I have to get to van? What do you have to make a still life for? I mean, what's the, what's the message? So I think, I think that, that the message is that you, is suddenly you can look at the apples and pears. You can see them, and you see that even apples and pears are arranged. Even apples and pears can harmonize with each other or be in disharmony with each other. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. You'll be able to see, to see the world of creation on that kind of a particularistic level. And so, uh, let's go and look at... After this introductory discussion, we visited various galleries in the museum, starting with the contemporary Israeli art. At first, we stood in front of the Israeli artist and sculptor Yigal Tumarkin's Mita Mishuna, a mixed-media installment from 1984, and then we looked at Yosef Zaritsky's The Painter and the Model from 1949. Now, uh, this, um, whatever it is, I know what it is, it's a collage of some sort, it's uh, by Yigal Tomarkin. Yigal Tomarkin, and this caught my attention, I didn't know anything about this painting, I didn't know that it existed, or whatever it is sculpture so and I don't like to market he's not, not a likable kind of guy for me <laughs> yeah. so anyway this is called Mita Mishuna now in the in the uh, museum um, booklet which includes a discussion of this painting so what do they say they say well it was at the time of the Lebanon war and he was a like a peacenik and he was very against the fact that uh, soldiers were being killed for according to him no particular reason so he took this word mita which in Hebrew uh, which uh, can be two words in Hebrew like a bed and death 
right? That he wrote it purposely in English because then you can you don't know which it is. And Mishunah is is um, it's strange, but Mishunah, 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 Mishunah let's understand in Hebrew it's meant uh, an odd, a strange, a difficult, an oppressive kind of death. And in spite of the fact, in spite of the fact that the the things in the they had, like the this bed or the whatever you call that, you know, what you carry the soldiers who are wounded in, you know, like it has a lot of symbolic stuff that but it also to me it was Mita Mishuna. It was I just I just uh, like as an explanation, as a, a configuration that it's in the world. He took he took things that are in the world and he made Mitamishuna, which remains for those people who learn Torah like uh, any kind of an unexpected death. But he he produced it. This to me is Mitamishuna. I'm not interested in the Lebanon connection. And I mean, I'm not saying that that he's right or wrong or that the interpretation is right or wrong. I'm just saying that for me, for me to be able to put a notion together makes it uh, kind of very serious and very, uh, very meaningful. So, I became a fan of this particular um, uh, creation. Mita Mishuna. Somebody want to add something? The title is very important. Whose? The title. The fact that he put the name on it. In English. Yes. Without that, probably wouldn't have had the reaction. Yeah, could be. Could be. Uh, often the names that painters give paintings are not impressive. But in this case, there's no doubt that the name is meaningful. Yeah. So, but to me, it became an idea, like an idea converted into a reality. That was what uh, somehow he had accomplished, to my mind. What are the physical characteristics that embodies that Mishunah for you? I don't know. Like, it seems like uh, someone is dying and, and it's Mishunah. You know, it just, it's just a good shot. It's a good shot. It, it, uh, even though Mitah Mishunah could be anything. It doesn't have a specific... Anybody, a Mitah Mishunah could be someone who gets hit by a car, you know. But this really is Mishunah. Now, this is really something that you don't expect in the world. This this kind of configuration, Rabbi Sinclair. I'm, I'm wondering if it, if it meets yours or Kant's. I'm not quite sure you agree with Kant, but it meets that criteria of being for no other purpose. I mean, you know, the strips of blue and white right there. It's, you know, it's probably it's a political point. He's saying, you know. These like st- stupid government killing people into war, and that's why they got killed. And it's I understand the it does speak on a deeper level as well, but there's but it's also it's also propaganda. I mean, it's almost like 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 this one, which is worse, but it's, it's, it's you know. Yeah, you know, no, like no, hateful anti-religious violence. Look, I agree. Right. I agree with what you say, yeah. but uh, what I'm just saying is that for me, the deeper concept took over. And I was not annoyed at all by the fact that it was such flagrant, uh, you know, commercially driven a notion. 
Well, what didn't bother me? I did. Political. Okay, political. But I think that I think that it's a great product. You know, like it's it's something. And this is um, Zeritsky. Now, now, you know, Israel. I don't know if you've noticed about Israel, but you know, Israel has to be the best at everything. So that in Russia, Gelfand really won. It doesn't matter what they say. He won because he has stamina and he's good and he, you know, whatever the reasons are. So it's interesting that in Israel there was a school of abstract painting that existed after World War II. The father of the school was Yosef Gzeritsky. That was his name. Now, how do I know about this? And this is also something that Mrs. Fink, I'm sure, will know. One of the proponents, proponents of modern Israeli art in Yerushalayim, her name was Bertha Urdang. And Bertha Urdang was my Rebbe in modern uh, Israeli painting. And she sold me all the paintings that I own except for one. Because I thought at the time that she felt sorry for me because I didn't know what I was doing. And so she didn't overcharge me. But I think she was not good with money in general. And maybe she did the same thing to other people as well. But she was very interesting. She had a gallery and then she moved the gallery to her home. What? And she had a gallery in New York. And she, has a do- she had a daughter who was a stewardess on LL. Did you know that? Right? And then she married, who did she marry? Um, that uh, well-known gynecologist in Yerushalayim. Anyway, there are limits. There are limits. To, no, he's now the head of in Hadassah. I think he's the head of uh, gynecology in Hadassah. Um, it'll probably come out, you know, at some later time. So Zeritsky. So that really what happened with Zeritsky? Zeritsky painted hundreds of paintings like watercolors in his house looking out at the window in Tel Aviv. Most of them, most of them he threw away. But he didn't like them. And then the scavengers went to the garbage and pulled them out of the garbage and sold them to Bertha Erdang and people like Bertha. And then she sold it to me. You know, even though... But it doesn't matter, even though it may have been in the garbage for a while, it still looks... Uh, so he was the father of abstract painting in Israel. And he had Talmudim, like Streichman was a Talmud of Zeritsky, the whole school of people. Now, I wanted to just talk about abstract painting a little bit. Um, I, even though I know that abstract painting is divided into... It's levels and times and, and that for, uh, earlier and later. But the whole idea of abstract painting is that, or an idea, as far as I can tell, is that you sort of see it, but you don't really see it. So if you don't really see it, you have to see it through your own eyes. You have to, like if they tell you there's a window, and there's a table, and there's a flower, and, and, and you say... Where? Where is all of that stuff? But you look very carefully. You see, there's a window, 
and there's a, like a box and there's other things around that, and, and it forces you to make a shape where there's no shape which is in a way a creative act on the part of the on the part of the viewer like, like you, you're forced to you say okay he had he just all he did was look at nothing he painted nothing at all painted a view from a window and it was the same view over and over and over again he painted the beach in Tel Aviv again and again and again and again but he forced us to look at things and create them, so to speak, to make them. I think that that's what abstract painting, the more abstract kind of painting, is trying to do. It's trying to involve me in a certain way. Whereas Rembrandt, you look at the night watch, you say, wow, it's like the Scottish Highlands. You just know that there's something special about it. But you know what it is. Abstract painting uh, of this kind you don't really know what, what it is at all. Like, in between, you have something that's called cubism, right, where, you know, the heads are in the wrong place and the arms are up or down. Or, but you could put it together. You could put together the picture. And that's what the artist is forcing us, forcing us to do. So this is the father of abstract painting, in Israel, his name was Joseph Saritsky. Somebody would like to add something? Could, could you connect it to what you were saying upstairs? How, I think I call landscape and Scottish Highlands as a method of the human. How does abstract painting do that? Well, again, it forces you to create the world. It forces you to see the world in your way, in a special way, which is a kind of a divine act, because God did that. And now you're doing that. Of course, you do it with the Aram kids. You do it like in a very minor kind of way, but it gives you the feeling of being part of creation. Uh, if that's what you want to let it do. Like we said, Ralph Cook said, you know, uh, Rembrandt knew about the awe of Bereshit. Okay, because Ralph Cook knew about the awe of Bereshit, because that's where his, his all, all the things that were poured into him led him to. The same thing is true for the, the smaller characters like, like us. We learn Torah, like we know about certain things. We know God created this on the day one and day two and day three. And we find ourselves also, Tin, involved in that creative act. So that's what, and that produces the Ava and the Yura that the Rambam is talking about, that you get to appreciate it. Says, wow, this is like, a, uh, everybody knows that we are designed to be able to participate in the process of creation. But here we're doing it. We're doing it because we look at a painting and we create it. We create the scene. We create the vision. There is such a, there is such a thing. Is the artist creating a scenario where we can examine it? Is he doing that on purpose where we can examine it and each of us take our own creation? Or, or, for example, could we take a painting of a six or seven year old child who's got lots of colors and likes to play around with it and put something on and also examine it and come up with something from full cloth? Well, the first part of your question, um, I don't think the artist necessarily has to join in the process. I think, you know, 
I mean, it's very interesting to know about the artist and how he worked and what kind of colors he used and, and what he did in the early time of his life and the latter time of his life, but you don't have to know any of that. You don't have to. As far as uh, the children, I mean, I don't think children have that kind of depth. That It's not true that abstract painting and children's painting are the same. That's not true. Even... You know, even abstract painters who paint with their feet or their hands or their, you know, like, dray around like that, they're not children. I mean, they came to it. They, they, it's not just a trick. That's a children. A lot of them suffered, you know, in order to get to this point where they just pour paint on canvas and smear it around. You know, it's not quite... Yeah, Jackson Pollock, I mean, you know, it's hard to say that he didn't have an idea. You know, like, he didn't just get up. It wasn't, I mean... He went through many stages. Right, right. But I think what, in a way, these abstract artists responded to what was happening in the world. It was very good photography, which could have actually captured the scene down to its minutest detail. And they, so they didn't want to paint in a realistic way. They were looking for a new way to express the essence of what they wanted to show. And, and the reason it's called abstract is because they abstracted from the, pic, from the scene that they wanted to depict the essence to them. And when they produced it on canvas, each of us can go and interpret that for the essence. But the idea is that the sensation that they got from the scene is what they produced, not the actual pictorial image. And I think that in abstract art, the more you see of it, the more you understand how they achieve that sensation. They do it in different ways. So it's good that when, whenever I do this, I take a museum director along with me. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, I look, I don't know about abstract painting and photography. Photography also moved in the direction of abstraction. It was, it was the photographers were also not satisfied with what they were able to, what they were able to produce. And even though they produced that guy who took pictures of birds, whoever it was, was just wonderful, like he took wonderful pictures of birds, but today photography is something else, you know, they go back to black and white sometimes, they, they distort things because they, they don't want you to think that it's a simple reproduction of reality, which has become not so interesting, it's true, I mean, uh, there's so much painting that was done, but look, uh, even uh, Rembrandt is, I think, Rembrandt's reality. It's not the reality. It's what it's like endless messages that he was able to uh, to send us. If you see a portrait by Rembrandt, and what you see is you say, "Oh, he looks like a Jew." You know, people always say that because he probably was a Jew. You know, the people he painted. But that's not the point. That's not what Rembrandt was trying to do. He's trying to create an emotion, a sense of, of the understanding of the human being, of, of the purposefulness of existence. I mean, these are all things that he was in, interested in. The fact that he, the, or the fact that he quoted that he, because it would sell, he, he painted a lot of biblical scenes, some of which are very famous. But of course, if you learn the Bible, if you study uh, Torah, 
his interpretation of the Torah is less interesting than it is. You know, that it is its own thing. It's not a pshat. You know, a pshat means I take it back into the text. I have to take it back into the text. Uh, you know, Rembrandt, he, he did what he did. And he used the, the Bible as a kind of touchstone, but he didn't interpret the Bible. Entering the Impressionists gallery, we looked at Camille Pissarro's 1890 painting, Sunset at Erone. This is a, a certain type of abstraction, right? It's Pissarro, who was famous for the fact that he was probably Jewish, which is something that Jews cannot avoid talking about. But his grandmother was Jewish. Yeah. He might have been Jewish. What I mean is, he didn't make a point of it. And he, uh, the only one to, who doesn't think he's Jewish is him. <laughs> so uh, I guess that doesn't mean anything. But uh, anyway, he had this way of painting called uh, pointillism, pointillism. And um, it sort of made everything hazy. Made everything look um, like unfinished. Unimperfect, and uh, it drew you in. You know, drew you in. I have a. I, I actually own an imitation Pizarro, which I got in Leningrad, in the Hermitage, for no money at all because that's how it was in those days. What? It was. When I was there, it was Leningrad. Yeah. But it doesn't matter, but it's the same place, right? So in the Hermitage, they had this thing. You could go and order any painting that they had on the wall, and they gave it to you in a little... So I have, a, I have that Pizarro, but I don't usually tell anybody. But the people who visit me don't know Pizarro, so it doesn't make that much difference. So, then you see hazy. hazy. Like, why would somebody want to paint hazy? Instead of painting clear and distinct, um, I think he felt it felt like you know maybe um, maybe you're right that uh, he was afraid of cameras, but uh, you know the veneer painted with cameras in those days, right? So cameras are not such a new thing and. Uh, so, so you see, it seems to me that again, what could be like a very simple and trivial scene, we're encouraged to make something of it. We're encouraged to sort of look at it, like what's there, and what's behind the tree, and what's in the sky, and why is the sun covered up? I mean, we're encouraged to look carefully at, uh, at that, and that's the greatness of the painting as I see it, right, that the painting can draw me in and make me look at the world more carefully, right, that's what, what this uh, Pizarro is, okay, one more, one more painting. Rounding out our visit to the Israel Museum, we visited one of Rabbi Bravender's favorite painters, Mark Rothko, looking at one of his untitled 1955 abstracts.
I have a, I have a weakness for, for Rothko. Uh, wherever I go, any museum I go to, I go to look at the Rothkos. Do you know that he taught Hebrew? He taught? He taught Hebrew. He was the Hebrew teacher. Really? Where, in Bronx. San Francisco? No, in the Bronx. The Bronx? He, grew up in New York. he must have really been down and out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know? when, when he was a young man. I was in New York once. I, was, I heard that there's this very rich man who has a lot of Rothkos in his house. Not anymore. Uh, so I call him up. I never, I never met him. Uh, so I, I want... Everybody who knows, knows. Everybody who doesn't know, doesn't know. So I called him up. I said, uh, can I come and see the Rothkos? He said, sure, when do you want to come? So we agreed on a time. So I came, but he wasn't there. You know, he had somebody in the house who let me in, and I could sit there, so I sat there for hours looking at the Rothkos. Unbelievable. Like, there were 18 of them. 18. You know, like Rothkos. They're, they're very big. This is a very small one, but the, the Rothkos is very big. So you say, here, here like Rothkos. You know, a guy who came, he went to school, he went to Yale, Yale, and he was a very uh, uh, well-educated and well, and he wrote articles on, uh, and, and he painted in different styles until he came to this style. This style, what's this style? What is it? So, he has many, many paintings that are similar. The colors change, and the inside box and the outside box are not always the same, but if you just look at this painting, first of all, you see colors. There are at least three colors, at least. Right? There's the top and the bottom and the border. Right? Which are not, the border and the bottom are similar, but they're not the same. You see there's yellow in the bottom. And the, same, and the second thing that you know, that except for the outside uh, margin everything inside is is not there are no straight lines nothing ends in a straight line so you have the colors and you have the composition which is uh, anyway on the other on other Rothko's to me it seems like always that color uh, color and light of course are related because light white light breaks up into colors and so the colors, the colors here are like, like they try to push in against each other. But it, it was, he's looking at, I think, I'll tell you what I think. He's looking at light diffused. And that the diffused light is trying to get together to become white light. And, and this idea, he was obsessed by this idea. And he presented it in different ways at different times and, and then in these tremendous uh, paintings that he did tremendous in terms of their size now, do you remember there's a story with Texas or with, the universe, with some kind of a, there was going to be a um, I don't know a chapel and he was commissioned to do 12, 12 of these things in the chapel and then he didn't like what they did or where they hung it you know to be an artist you have to be a little bit sugar. He can't be regular. Of course, unfortunately, he ended up by committing suicide, right? Which is like a little taking the sugar a little too far. But, uh, okay, listen, what can we do? I mean, anyway, that's if somebody has something to add about Rothko, I told the story. Tell you what I think. I appreciate the fact that we had to be able to spend this time together. And if you want to see this Jackson Pollock on your way out, it's worth a look.
this this painting right here, the long, narrow painting. It's worth taking a look at. Thank you for joining us for this gallery talk, this Museum Midrash. We hope to bring you other installments in the future. In the meantime, visit the resource section of www.atid.org for links and other material that we've been doing related to the place of art in Jewish life.